Oh, beloved congregation, the desperate need of the hour is conversions. All around us in the city and this community, there are those who are on a one-way course to hell and judgment. They are under the wrath of God and they have no desire whatsoever for the message of the gospel. It's a hard truth, but there is none that seeketh after God. You speak to the people of our community and you tell them something of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's very plain that they simply have no recognition about how desperately they need the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's a sad thing when the state of the church is such that church growth, it consists primarily in, in natural growth, that of people born into the church and people moving from one congregation to another congregation. Indeed, we, we rejoice that um, people would be in, in good churches through those means. But primarily we want, don't we, people saved from the kingdom of darkness unto the kingdom of light. But it's also within the church as well. Isn't what we really long for, isn't what we pray for from the preaching of the word of God, that there would be conversions in our midst? The people who would say, I, I didn't once understand the gospel, but, but gradually or suddenly or however it's happened, I come to see that now it is all in Jesus Christ. All of salvation is found in him. I live not for myself, but I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now change is what we call conversion. One who is not saved comes into a state of salvation and isn't that what we should really be about as a christian congregation all number of other societies can deal with their own business and their own affairs but the church of the living god is about this the salvation of souls and we're liable to get distracted from this very important part of the church's existence and mission if we neglect the plain teaching of the Word of God on this matter. And of course, there's many things that we could look at in the Word of God that would help us to understand what true conversion is. And to my thinking, there's none that would set forth this reality of conversion more plainly in its relation to what I'd especially like to speak about, the law of God. This is what we find in, in this text of which we have read. You see, I'd, uh, I would want to say that the reason why people in the world see no need for the gospel and people in the church often see no need for the gospel is because this uh, reality which the Apostle Paul experienced in his own life has not come home to their own soul. The great law work which the Holy Spirit performs in the salvation of his chosen people is of great importance to a right understanding of the gospel and the conversion which the gospel brings. 
And so, congregation, let us give some reflection to this text, Romans 7, verse 9, in its surrounding context as well, but we will consider the theme conversion and the law. Conversion and the law. And we will see three thoughts which are really on the surface of the text. Those are alive without the law. Second, the coming of the law. And third, death by the law. Alive without the law, the coming of the law, and death by the law. Let's look again at what the apostle writes here. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived. And I died. I was alive without the law once. Paul here is speaking in a very peculiar way. He's speaking about something that used to be true about him in the past. And it was true about him before he became a converted man. Before he was born again of the Spirit of God and found his salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. In that state, he says he was alive. And it's a peculiar way of speaking. And and I think we're to, to see here that he's speaking of a current kind of condition that he was in. He he felt content. He felt happy. He he felt as though his life was was put together. Everything was going in a positive direction. And we might be able to understand that. And, and it's so terribly true, isn't it, that sometimes you'll speak to those out in the world who are unconverted and, and sadly people in the church as well who even will say that they are unconverted and there's a kind of complacency, a kind of contentment in that state. But he further adds this, I was alive without the law. Without the law. You might understand that if we were speaking of someone who had no religious background whatsoever. Someone who is without the law has, it appears, no knowledge of the law, no acquaintance with it. And such might be the case for many a person in modern-day Canada. But how is it? How is it that this could be spoken of the Apostle Paul? And children, I'm sure you're aware of this. You know, don't you, that this man, the Apostle Paul, he had a very particular kind of background before he became a Christian. He was what was called a Pharisee. A Pharisee, a deeply religious person. These were people who called themselves pure ones, separated ones. Holy ones. These were people who were all about the law of God. And really, for these sorts of of people, this group of people called the Pharisees, the law of God was, was of utmost importance. In another book that the apostle wrote in the book of Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul gives what you could call his credentials, what it was that he valued when he was in that, um, that time of his life when he was a Pharisee. So let's read from verses 4 to 7 of Philippians chapter 3. 
though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What are we to see all this amounting to? Well, here is someone who really prided himself on his religious identity. He was indeed not only an Israelite, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the most Jewish of Jewish people, of that visible covenant people of God. And that wasn't enough for him. He had to join the most strict, conservative, traditional version of that religion. And not only so, but he devoted his life to unusual zeal, committing himself to the persecution of the Christians because of their perceived deviation from the traditions of his fathers. And as far as the externals were concerned, as far as the things you could look upon in his life, you'd have to say he's blameless as far as the law is concerned. He is strict. He is scrupulous. He is detailed. Everything in its place according to the standard of the law of God. And so this is the man, this religious man, who in the same way can reflect upon that time in his life, having passed through into a a different kind of life. He looks back on what he was like then, and he says, I was without the law. How is that possible? Well, how is it possible for anyone to be acquainted with the law and yet to be not understanding of the law? Isn't it a terrifying possibility that there can be those in the most religious, conservative, even reformed upbringings in churches that prize themselves on following the commandments of God and yet the reality is There's really no acquaintance with what that means for ourselves personally as it concerns the matters of the heart. Reminded of another man who came before the Lord Jesus when he was on the road to Jerusalem. He he was known as the rich young ruler. He runs up to Jesus, falls down at his feet, looks up into his face and says, Good teacher, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? And you'd say, Excellent question. Here is someone on the right track. But Jesus looks at him and, and sees exactly what he needs to hear. He said, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. Do not steal. Honor your father and your mother. And this man is shocked. Why would Jesus tell him of all people, 
a very master in the, the religion of the Jews. Why are you just telling me these things out of the law? He says, teacher, all these have I kept from my youth. What lack I yet? So it is with a great number of people in religion also today, even in Reformed churches. When it comes to the law of God, it just concerns the externals. Paul speaks about this even in this chapter, if you would go up one verse. He says, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concubescence, which just means evil desire, wrong desires. For without the law, sin was dead. He's saying, well, the, the reality of it was this. Though on the outside I had, was someone who appeared to have my whole life put together, the reality is that on the inside I was a monster of iniquity. Living in open rebellion against God, I was like one of those whitewashed tombs, nice on the outside, inside only death. And so it is for a great many religious people today when it comes to the threatenings and the thunderings of God's holy commandments. These are things that do not fill them with dread and sorrow, terror and conviction for their sin. These are just so many things that they can easily accommodate their lives to because they are so many weapons in which they can use against others. They are so many things which they can use to feel self-righteous and to look down upon others. These are so many things in which they can sort of uh, negotiate their own dealings with God such that they can earn some righteousness in themselves. And all this is possible, how? Because ultimately all of the good gifts of God's revelation and commandments are twisted and distorted to make them ten times the children of hell as otherwise they would have been. It's a devastating thing. It's a tragic thing to be in this condition. I was alive without the law once. And what is it that can change such a terrible situation? One who is so self-deceived that they are high on their own self-righteousness, able simply to live in that state where the laws of God are just so many rules in which they've checked off and are able to count themselves righteous. Well, rather, what we have here is the second thing that is said, not only that he was alive without the law, but the second is this, the coming of the law. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived. Now it's 
It's, a, to me, a very interesting thing that's spoken of here. Here is someone who is soaked in the law of God, who lived the law of God, who obsessed over the law of God, who could have quoted his Old Testament Bible backwards and forwards and shown you each one of the minute commandments and how it impinges upon our uh, daily duties. And yet, Paul is speaking about a particular time in which Whereas formerly the law was absent, suddenly the law came. And so it says, where the law was a total stranger to him until it knocked on the door of his heart and said, here am I, behold, I am the law. Now, as this seems to be especially connected to his conversion, it might be worth asking the question, when exactly did this happen? When Did this law come? The commandment came. Well, children, you know, don't you, that amazing story of the Apostle Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. There was the Apostle Paul, or as he was known then, Saul of Tarsus. And he had papers from the high priest. And he was going to arrest and to kill Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus. And what happened? Well, he was breathing out threatenings and slaughters, so biting at the bit in order to kill these followers of the Lord until the Lord appeared to him in a blinding light, in a thundering voice. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. This man was knocked off of his horse and he became blind for three days and three nights. He was without food or water until the time where the Lord's messenger, Ananias, came and spoke a word of gospel to him. And I wonder, could it have been that, those three days sitting in darkness without food or water, that as this man who was knocked off his horse by that encounter with the Lord Jesus began to look over his life, began to consider the end and the beginning and the going and the coming and everything that he had done, all the motivations of his heart, that all of a sudden the things that he had heard out of the law of God suddenly came home to his soul. Perhaps it was then, maybe it was another time, but... However it was, it was around his conversion that the commandment of God became a reality to this man who became the Apostle Paul. And how did that work exactly? How is it that the law had this effect upon him? And you might ask the question, well, how is it that it has the effect on anyone? You're going to have someone who's unconverted, who's sat under the reading of the Ten Commandments every Lord's Day. Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And they think, okay, here come the Ten Commandments again. Time to tune out. Don't have to listen to this. But then maybe they would have the encounter that the Apostle Paul had, where the law would actually be applied unto their heart and soul. Look up in verse 7 of this chapter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, 
thou shalt not covet. So it seems that this was how it worked. The Apostle Paul, he looked at his life and he said, well, the externals, the things that anyone can see, they'd have to conclude that I am without the least offense when the law is concerned. But then there was this commandment that he couldn't reconcile with that principle about coveting, about desiring that which we do not have, such that we are discontented with the Lord's dealings with us such that we are not living in humble dependence upon him and in submission to his will, but we are anxious. We are are rebellious against the Lord. That is the kind of desire that is normal, welling up in in the hearts of those who especially are in the bondage to sin. And it exposes, doesn't it, that all of the law is this way. All of the law concerns not just the outward conduct, but the inner recesses of the heart. Did not the Lord Jesus Christ himself say on the Sermon on the Mount that if you so much as look upon a woman with with lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. And if you have sinful anger towards your brother, then you are guilty of murder. For the law of God does not just concern the outward conduct, it concerns the heart. Also this as well, not only the specificity, the spirituality, the the heart of the law, but but as well the purity of it. Notice what he says there in verse 12. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. This was impressed upon Paul in a way it never had been before. He saw that this this law of God was so pure. It was so exacting. It was so strict. It was so good that there was really nowhere to hide the, the mountain of iniquity that lied within. Maybe you've had... This experience on a, a summer day, you're in a, in a house and the lights in the house are off and, and you look up and, and there is a, is a white beam of light going through the dim room and there the beam of light is shooting through the room and, and you look up and there are all these little specks, all these little dust particles going around. You look around this room right now, and they're invisible, aren't they? But it's when the light coming from that beam shoots in that you come to see, well, well, there it is. It's, It's plain as day. So it also is with the law of God, where it shines forth the purity of God's character and holiness and goodness and is applied with power to our own hearts, our desires, our own thoughts, And suddenly we come to see just how deep the rot goes. And so he puts it in a very remarkable way in our text. But when the commandment came, sin revived. So it's like sin. He he thought that was behind him. He had dealt with it. He'd cleaned up his life. He'd cleaned up his act. He had his life in a way that was strictly adhering to the law of God. And then all of a sudden, Like a terrible monster from the deep, it resurrects, it revives, and he comes to see that he had been fooling himself all along. 
that that self-righteous veneer, it was simply covering over the deep problem of sin within his soul. Here we have the application of the law of God coming not merely in word but in power to an unconverted soul. And this is teaching us, isn't it, that this law work of the Holy Spirit, this knowledge of sin, which is not of man, but is of God, a true conviction of sin in our souls, it is something that is not to be despised or ignored or assumed. The preaching of the law is of great importance because it's by the law that we come to have knowledge of sin. Why is it that anyone would see any need for the gospel? Why is it that they would have any attraction whatsoever to the Lord Jesus Christ if not for the preaching of the law? Why is it that anyone would come to see their desperate need for a Savior without coming to see something of the horrible disease of sin and judgment in hell? The reality is, congregation, that we ought to take the law of God and we ought to welcome its piercing into our hearts. We ought to welcome that, wor- that word of conviction that comes when wor- God speaks to us out of his law and says, Thou shalt not, and thou shalt. Here are the things you've left undone. Here are the things that must be done. And you come to see it's all good. It's all holy. It's all necessary. It's all absolutely required. And when we hear that, we come to see how desperately we need the Savior. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that when it came to the preaching of the Bible, he wanted to know the very worst of his condition. Nothing papered over, nothing ignored, nothing sugar-coated. Give me the straight truth. Show me how bad I am in light of the law of God. And when that is not resisted but welcome, when it is bowed under and submitted to, it is then that we are made teachable. When we are made receptive to the word of the gospel. Could it not be that there are those even here who have to take a trip to Mount Sinai. You need to go to the great mountain where the law of God was revealed with thunder and lightning, where there was that great fire over the mountain, great billows of smoke ascending into heaven, and the word that came from that mount, cursed is everyone who continues not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. Congregation, what we need is not that the wounds of the people of God be healed slightly. A little bit of knowledge of sin just so that we can rush on to the good news of the gospel. No, we need to come to see the depths and the heinousness of our sin before the great beauty of the gospel can be fully appreciated. I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived. And what else, Paul? Well, 
He closes with those three words, and I died. There was this as well, not only that he was alive without the law, and there was the coming of the law, but there was his death by the law. There was this work that was done by God in his soul. He died. And so if you follow the logic of this text, you come to see that whereas once he was content, he was happy to live in his damnable state, living without God and without Christ in the world, all of a sudden that all became worthless and meaningless. Thus he was able to write later on in that chapter which we read from Philippians chapter 3 after he lists all of his glowing credentials as a Pharisee of the Pharisees he says in verse 7 but what things were gained to me those I counted loss for Christ not only things that were you know okay not only things that were you know just not the best but rather they were loss They were the worst. They were but dung when compared to the insurpassable glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is the problem that many people may face. That their desire for conversion, their desire for salvation is not so sincere, is not so pure, because ultimately it still comes from a place of self, a place of self-aggrandizement. The, the gospel is just another accessory to your life. It's another thing you can add to your package. But ultimately it's all just about living without God, living without the law, living without grace, living according to your own strength and your own steam. Far different when the work of conviction takes root in the soul and we come to see that everything that we have to commend is but filthy rags in the sight of a holy fire of a God. That indeed, with God in whom there is no iniquity, in whom there is no lie, We have to mean business. We have to surrender it all. We have to repent and confess not only our sins which we recognize to be sins, but the secret sins of the heart. We have to repent, as it were, of our very righteousness, of our very best works and accomplishments. Because in the blinding light of God's holiness, we come to see that they are foul and polluted and can never attain the justification and righteousness of God. With God who demands perfect righteousness, it must come from a different source. And so it is that this apostle can write in this very chapter, going back to verse um, uh, verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead, to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth unto God. You see, congregation, you may be asking yourself the question, how long must this law work take place? How deep must the cut go? How long must we sit in darkness before the light of the gospel would shine forth? 
Well, it's simply this, that we have to experience this work of conviction in this way, in precisely the measure that would bring us to the foot of the cross, in precisely that extent that would cause us to see that God is God and I am not, that everything he says is true, I am guilty and hell-deserving and I need a Savior. To such a one who is condemned by the law, the gospel is what it truly should be. It is good news. It is as a healing balm to the sin-sick soul. It is that which brings refreshing water to the parched and the dead and the dying. It is a word of life and healing, of forgiveness and of perfect righteousness. It's found in Jesus Christ, this one who indeed has risen from the dead, risen from the dead because he bore all the punishment that our sins deserve upon the cross. He lived in such a way as to perfectly fulfill the demands of God's righteous law. And so his righteousness is freely offered, not to those who deserve it, but only in undeserved mercy and grace to those who will receive it in the empty hand of faith. Congregation, if you are sitting in this state of conviction, if you sorrow for your sin, if you are one who says that the law of God is true, that I am one who deserves hell and judgment, then I have good news for you. There is salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we would but understand these things, congregation, that the law of God and the gospel of God are both set forth for our edification, for our salvation, and bringing us into a knowledge and an acquaintance of Jesus Christ and his saving righteousness, then, congregation, we are those who can rejoice in the gospel that Paul proclaimed. But for those who would go on living in that state of of life and contentment without God and without the law and without the gospel, I say unto you, may may God be pleased to seal his work unto your soul today, to bring you to the end of yourself and cause you to have this confession. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and 